Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this year's IPS Northern Lecture Series by Ravi Menon, our ninth SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Mr. Menon will be delivering his first lecture titled The Four Horsemen. Following his lecture, Mr. Menon will take questions from the audience in the Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Danny Kwa, Dean and Lee Ka Shin, Professor of Economics from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at NUS. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comment box. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a QR code and a link on the Facebook comment box at the end of the lecture, which you can click on to submit your feedback. So without further ado, our Deputy Director of IPS, Jillian Koh, will be giving her opening remarks. Jillian, please. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the ninth IPS Northern Lecture Series. IPS Director Janada Steven has delivered the opening remarks for all our Northern Lectures, but regrettably, he's unable to join us today because he's had to take urgent leave. He sends his apologies, and I'm pleased to be able to deliver the opening remarks on his behalf. First, some background. The SR Northern Fellowship for the Study of Singapore was established in 2014 to pay tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, the late Mr. SR Northern. The fellowship aims to promote greater discussion of Singapore's governance frameworks and how they interact with contemporary global and local public policy developments. Now, we're very pleased to introduce our ninth SR Northern Fellow, Mr. Ravi Menon. Mr. Ravi Menon is the Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, MAS. Mr. Menon first joined MAS in 1987 and is reaching his 10th year mark as uh, Managing Director of MAS. Prior to his appointment at the MAS, Mr. Menon was Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Trade and Industry, where he led the Ministry's work in economic strategy, international trade, energy policy and research development. He also served as the Deputy Secretary at the Ministry of Finance before that, where he was responsible for Singapore's fiscal policy and the management of government reserves. A recipient of the Singapore Government's Meritorious Service Medal and the Public Administration Gold Medal, Mr. Menon has served on several boards in the public, private and people sectors as well. Mr. Ravi Menon's four-lecture series is titled The Singapore Synthesis. In his first lecture today, as you've heard, it is titled The Four Horsemen where he will discuss four fundamental trends that will challenge the existing governance order and share what these may mean for Singapore. This will be followed 
uh, with, by a second lecture a week from now, which will be titled An Innovative Economy. Looking at the future, in that second lecture, Mr. Menon promises to examine the barriers that Singapore may face in its journey towards a new wave of economic and social development. He will emphasize on the need for greater innovation on all fronts to overcome those barriers and challenges. Following that, Mr. Menon will deliver a third lecture called An Inclusive Society on the 22nd of July. He will expound on the application of the notion of meritocracy in Singapore and talk about the steps that may be needed to create an even more inclusive society uh, going forward. Finally, in his fourth lecture titled An Inspiring Nation, Mr. Menon will discuss the key values that have guided the development of Singapore and how these might guide us further into the future. So please allow us to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Ravi Menon for uh, finding the time to join us in spite of his very busy schedule. You will appreciate that this is a time when the demands on him at MAS have never been greater and we are grateful that he has agreed to deliver four lectures in spite of that. We'd also like to take this opportunity to thank our own Dean at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Professor Danny Kua, who is Lee Ka Shing Professor of Economics and a renowned scholar on globalization in the world. We are grateful that he has agreed to chair this lecture and the Q&A section that follows. As you can imagine, he's eminently suited for the role. So thank you, Dean. We'd finally like to take the opportunity also to thank the three moderators for the lectures that follow. Uh, first, Mr. Chung Kai Fong, he, who is Managing Director of the Economic Development Board in the second lecture. Then Ms. Chua Mui Hong, who is Associate Editor of The Straits Times, as well as the fourth moderator, Ms. Tan Shushan, who is Group Head of Institutional Banking at DBS Bank. I'm sure they'll all uh, bring out a very interesting, impactful series that we hope you'll be able to be with us and join us and participate actively over the course of this series. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mr. Ravi Menon to deliver his first lecture in this ninth series of the IPS Northern Lectures. Mr. Ravi Menon, please. Good afternoon. And uh, thank you, thank you, Gillian. And uh, my gratitude also to the IPS uh, for this, uh, this honor and this opportunity uh, to speak to you. There are some fundamental changes sweeping across the world. The Book of Revelation speaks of four horsemen emerging at the dawn of the apocalypse. Interpretations of what they signify vary. But in most accounts, the four horsemen symbolize conquest, war, famine, and death. If the horsemen represent fundamental changes to the old order, then the four horsemen today, which are capable of bringing about such change, are demographics, inequality, 
technology, and climate. Aging demographics, rising inequality, technological disruption, and climate change will together precipitate the biggest economic and societal transformation the world has seen since the Industrial Revolution. Whether they lead to apocalypse or provide the impetus for renaissance depends on how the global community and individual nations respond to them. Given what we are going through today, is there a fifth horseman that we should consider? Pandemic. Epidemics and pandemics have ravaged the world for centuries, with the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages estimated to have wiped out 30 to 60% of Europe's population. In the last two decades, we have seen SARS, MERS, Ebola, to name a few. And for 18 months now, the world has been battling the COVID-19 pandemic, which has infected more than 180 million people and taken nearly 4 million lives. Are we on the cusp of a new age of pandemics? Increased interaction between humans and animals, urbanization and overcrowding, global connectivity, even climate change have emerged as risk factors for what some experts believe may be new pandemics occurring more frequently, perhaps every 10 years or so. Even if we are not looking at more frequent pandemics, COVID-19 is here to stay. Earlier this year, the UK-based scientific journal Nature asked more than 100 immunologists, infectious disease researchers, and virologists working on COVID-19 whether the virus could be eradicated. Almost 90% of the respondents said no. Instead, COVID-19 will become endemic meaning that it will continue to circulate in pockets of the global population for years to come. Locking down large parts of the economy or closing borders in an effort to bring infections down to zero is futile. In the endemic stage, COVID-19 will likely become less fatal or debilitating. Populations will acquire herd immunity against the virus from mass vaccination and extensive natural infection. Several effective treatments are now available that can reduce disease severity and mortality. In the endemic phase, the number of infections roughly stabilizes and societies tolerate the seasonal illnesses and deaths they bring. In fact, seasonal flu still claims roughly 650,000 lives per year globally. Even in Singapore, the seasonal flu results in more than 520,000 outpatient visits, 1,500 hospitalizations, and nearly 600 deaths each year. Countries that learn and adapt how to live in an endemic COVID world will do better than those who do not. The willingness of populations to get vaccinated will be a critical success factor. Estimates vary, but countries will need to vaccinate 75 to 90% of their populations to reach herd immunity. Herd immunity does not mean no one gets infected or no one dies of COVID-19. 
but by greatly reducing the risks of severe disease and death, it considerably enhances a country's ability to thrive in an endemic COVID world. Unfortunately, misinformation has led to considerable vaccine skepticism in many parts of the world. Countries that take a risk management approach and avoid the extremes of zero tolerance or laissez-faire will do better. Countries that have chosen strategies of zero or very low tolerance for infections will have a hard time reopening their economies. Sound risk management is also key in responding judiciously to the occasional spikes in infections that will occur from time to time. Not imposing any safe management measures, especially if significant sections of the population have not been vaccinated, risks bringing on a renewed epidemic. On the other hand, closing borders and imposing lockdowns in response to every new outbreak will severely affect livelihoods with little or no gain in lives saved. Singapore is well-placed to make the transition from pandemic to endemic COVID. Singapore's strategy for now is to contain new transmissions until the population is largely vaccinated. Letting up restrictions prematurely will only prolong the pandemic situation, as many countries are tragically finding out. Moving to an endemic COVID world, we must learn to live with seasonal outbreaks with less draconian containment measures that minimize the impact on economic and social life. Testing, tracing, and therapeutics will be key to achieving this. Testing to pick up new infections quickly, tracing to identify and contain potential clusters, and therapeutics to treat and restore to health those who get infected. We must aim to make the recovery rate for COVID-19 close to that of seasonal flu. Then we can live without fear. Our aim must be to restore economic and social activities to pre-COVID levels. What will be different from pre-COVID times are likely a baseline level of safe management measures, such as mask wearing and safe distancing in riskier settings or periods of heightened alert. Uh, new social norms, such as not coming to work when not feeling well, and improved ventilation and fresh air exchange in our buildings. Every sizable organization ought to have a business continuity plan in case some form of mobility restrictions is reimposed. This will be a key dimension of our economic resilience. In fact, pandemic resilience could be a new source of competitive advantage for Singapore. In a post-COVID future, there will be a premium on trust and stability, on countries that can handle crises well with minimal disruption to economic activity. Global business leaders who talk to EDB and MAS say how Singapore's handling of the pandemic has strengthened its relative position as a resilient place to do business. Let me now move on to the, other, the four horsemen that are likely to have an even deeper and longer-term impact on the world and pose much larger challenges to Singapore. I, I will be rather selective in my discussion as I'm trying to cover all four horsemen in one lecture. My intent is to use the four horsemen to set the stage for a more focused discussion on Singapore in the next three lectures. The first horseman, demographics, is the most predictable of the four. 
His path is predetermined and we know where he is heading. The world is getting older. People are having fewer children and living longer. A half century of evidence suggests that in all prosperous countries where women are well educated and free to choose whether and when to have children, fertility rates fall significantly below replacement levels. Policy interventions by various countries to reverse fertility declines have generally not succeeded. The combination of declining fertility and rising life expectancy means that in the next few decades, the population of most of the world outside of Africa will plateau and begin to decline for the first time in modern history. The distribution of working age populations across countries and regions will become highly unequal. In the next 20 years, it is projected that the proportion of the working age in South Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, and North Africa will be above 65%. But without adequate skills training and job creation, these countries will not these countries will experience demographic burdens, not necessarily dividends. As a corollary, various countries and regions will experience a dramatic rise in their old age dependency ratios, the population aged 65 and above relative to the working age population. This will be sharply felt in the developed world. In Europe and America, it is projected to rise to 49 older persons per 100 working age persons by 2050. This is up from the current 30. The old age dependency ratio is projected to more than double in East and Southeast Asia, from 18 in 2019 to 43 in 2050. Rising old age dependency ratios could hamper economic growth. The pool of retirees will grow faster than the labor force. A greater share of national income will need to be devoted to healthcare and other social and economic support for seniors. Shifting age structures poses the risk that many developing countries in Asia may become old before they become rich, making the middle income trap more likely. Fertility rates far below replacement pose particularly serious challenges. The decline in the labor force will be sharp rather than gradual, and there will be a growing number of the very elderly who will require some kind of mobility assistance and personalized care. In Singapore, the fertility rate is only about half the replacement rate. Paradoxically, the public discourse on demographics has focused on whether the population is too large or growing too fast, or whether there are too many foreigners. But more significant than the size or composition of the population is the age of the population. In particular, the implications on the economy of a shrinking labor force and on society of a growing care gap for the very elderly. Singapore's working age citizen population has begun to shrink. By 2030, the proportion of citizens aged 20 to 64 is expected to decrease from 63% to 56%. A shrinking workforce means that productivity growth is the only source of economic growth. Increases in automation, female labor force participation, and retirement age will help, but will not be enough to offset the demographic impact on economic growth. Immigration and intake of foreign workers is one of the more effective ways to stretch out the effects of sharp labor force decline. 
it cannot be a permanent solution because eventually there will be physical limits to the size of population that Singapore can accommodate. The key is integration. Too rapid a rate of immigration can threaten a country's sense of identity and create anxieties of being overrun by foreigners. Countries that are able to successfully integrate immigrants into their societies have better prospects of overcoming their demographic constraints. Singapore has always been among such countries, and we must remain so. I will touch on foreign workers and immigration in all three of my next lectures. Singapore is one of the most rapidly aging countries in the world. By 2030, one in four Singaporeans will be aged 65 years and above, a marked increase from the ratio of one in six in 2020 and one in 10 in 2010. There will likely be a growing gap in caregiving for the elderly. Generally, the elderly of tomorrow are likely to stay healthy much longer than those today. But while fewer are likely to have chronic or debilitating conditions, more may become prone to the ailments of the very elderly, such as dementia and Alzheimer's. Between 2000 and 2020, the number of residents aged 65 years and over who had mobility issues nearly doubled from around 25,500 to 50,000. Our elderly are an important part of our social inclusion agenda. I'll come back to this in my third lecture. The second horseman, inequality, is the most prominent and talked about horseman. He poses one of the biggest social, economic, and political challenges of our time. Dispersion in income growth is a global phenomenon. In the United States, there has been a sharp divergence in wage growth between the two ends of the income distribution. According to a recent Brookings report, between 1979 and 2018, the average hourly real wage of the bottom 20% of the income distribution has more or less stagnated. By contrast, the income of the top percent in the US has risen sharply by over 200% in the same period. Along with its spectacular growth, China has also seen the world's biggest and fastest rise in inequality. A study by the China Development Research Foundation suggests that it has surged from less than 0.3 in 1978 to more than 0.48. Technology and globalization have been cited as the proximate drivers of the rise in income inequality. Of the two, Globalization is blamed more often, but many economists believe that skill-biased technological change is the main driver of income inequality. Technological change has dampened the demand for lower-skill workers. Now, by expanding opportunities for offshoring production, globalization has had strong displacement effects in localized settings, but its impact on inequality has probably not been as pervasive as that of technology. A certain degree of income inequality is inevitable and even desirable in a market economy. Differences in rewards are necessary to spur effort and enterprise, and unequal outcomes that reflect unequal abilities are generally accepted by most people. I would suggest that inequality becomes socially unacceptable and economically inefficient when it leads to increased poverty middle-class stagnation, a growing wealth gap, 
or reduced social mobility. These four outcomes imply a certain permanence and erode that critical ingredient for personal endeavour, hope for the future. The central economic challenge for a very large part of the world's population is poverty, not inequality. As the late Martin Felstein puts it, and I quote, the emphasis should be on eliminating poverty and not on the overall distribution of income or the general extent of inequality, unquote. Indeed, in many developing countries, alleviating poverty is a higher priority than reducing income inequality, and rightly so. And in many of these countries, economic growth has been the single most powerful factor in alleviating poverty. Growth has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the last 50 years, in China, India, Indonesia, and others. In the developed countries, poverty is of course lower and more stable and not as responsive to economic growth. The United States appears to be somewhat of an outlier where the poverty rate rose significantly in the wake of the recession caused by the 2008 global financial crisis. And early research suggests that the poverty rate rose again during the COVID-19 pandemic. The US poverty rate seems particularly sensitive to recessions, with some research pointing to weak US social safety nets as a key factor. European countries have had relatively more stable poverty rates through the business cycles with their stronger social safety nets. Developed countries, including high-income ones like Singapore, should set ambitious targets for reducing poverty. There is probably very little absolute poverty in Singapore. Nonetheless, it is important that the wage gap between those at the lower deciles of the income distribution and the median wage earner is not unduly large. I'll come back to this important theme in my third lecture. A thriving middle class is a necessary condition for the stability of society and durability of democracy. The gradual erosion of trust in the economic and political system that we see in many advanced economies is due not so much to the widening gap between the rich and the poor, but to the stagnation of the middle. Some estimates suggest that there has been no increase in real median wages in the US since the mid-1970s. In the UK, there has been similar stagnation or worse. Even in relatively egalitarian Scandinavian countries, there has been a squeeze on real earnings in the middle. Focusing on the diverging demands for various mid-level skills is probably more insightful than merely looking at these income deciles. There are important differences within the mid-wage brackets that we should recognize. What has been declining in many advanced economies is the traditional middle of the job market, composed primarily of construction, production, and clerical jobs that do not require a high degree of skills. In the US, a major cause of wage stagnation in the middle is the secular decline in manufacturing employment due to technological change. But demand for another set of mid-level skills is growing in areas such as healthcare, education, mechanical maintenance and repair, and some high-touch social, recreational, and community services. Singapore's experience on median wages has not been bad. 
Real median wages increased by an average 2.6% per annum over 2011 to 2020, higher than the 1.2% annual growth during 2001 to 2010. Sustaining healthy growth in median wages through active labor market policies will be important to give the broad middle of society hope and confidence in the future. I'll speak more about this in my third lecture. Wealth inequality has most likely worsened more than income inequality. According to Adai Turner, average wealth to income ratios have gone from 300 to 400 percent in 1970 to about 600 percent in 2014. It must be even higher now. According to the Global Wealth Report, millionaires make up 1 percent of the global adult population but account for 43 percent of global net worth. Wealth inequality is more pernicious than income inequality. If wealth is merely the accumulation of savings from income, then inequalities in wealth would largely reflect inequalities in income. The work of Thomas Piketty suggests that there has been a lot of wealth accumulation without any significant increase in savings. This is because the prices of assets which form wealth have risen faster than the prices of current goods and services which enter income. The key driver in wealth inequality in many countries is the rising price of urban land. According to Adai Turner, real estate has grown significantly as a source of wealth in the last 40 years, accounting for more than half of all national wealth in the UK and France. In both countries, the increase in the wealth to income ratio over the last 40 years has been significantly driven by the rise in real estate values or property prices. Property price increases are driven by both consumption and investment demand. As their incomes rise, people devote an increasing percentage of their disposable income to purchases of property in so-called prime locations which are limited in supply. Over time, this tends to produce housing prices rising faster than incomes. This in turn stimulates investment demand for housing in the pursuit of capital gains. So globally, property has become an investment asset class and getting onto the housing escalator to get rich has become a trend across the major urban centers of the world, London, in Sydney, Vancouver, Los Angeles, Dubai, Hong Kong, Singapore, and many more. In almost all societies, wealth is far more unequally distributed than income. As the ratio of wealth becomes more important relative to income, income inequality further increases. Market processes are allocating an increasing share of national income to income from property and other financial assets and a reducing share to income from work. This is a development that we should be deeply concerned about. I will offer some thoughts on this from the Singaporean perspective in my third lecture. Rising, inequality, rising income inequality can lead to reduced social mobility. The evidence is rather mixed on whether income inequality has directly reduced social mobility. On the other hand, income inequality has very likely increased disparities in health, education, skills levels, and subsequent labor mobility, all of which have an impact on social mobility. A highly skewed income distribution could translate into less equality of opportunity for the next generation. And this seems to be happening. 
Among the rich nations for which studies have been done, those with greater income inequality tend to have less mobility across generations. We must avoid the risk of a hereditary meritocracy. The word meritocracy was coined in the 1950s by Michael Young, a British sociologist. Even then, Young had warned that the incipient meritocracy to which he had given a name could be as narrow and pernicious in his own way as the aristocracies of old. The condition of one's birth should not overly determine the outcome of one's life. The paradox at the heart of the new meritocracy is that how far one gets in how far one goes in education determines how far one goes in life. According to Claudia Golin and uh, Lawrence Katz from Harvard, differences in educational attainment explain 60% of America's widening wage inequality between 1973 and 2005. This was attributed to the rising wage premium to education and the soaring cost of college education in America. In short, income inequality is being driven by inequality in human capital. And as the importance of human capital grows, meritocracy itself is at risk of becoming heritable, where the elite reproduce themselves. People are naturally good, some would say biologically programmed, at passing on their privileges to their children. According to Sean Reardon of Stanford, recent decades have seen a growing correlation between parental income and children's test scores. Educated and successful men and women tend to marry one another, and such assorted mating increases inequality by 25% by, by one estimate. Such couples typically enjoy two large incomes, provide stable homes for their children, and stimulate them relentlessly from birth with enrichment classes. Public policies can potentially play a key role in mitigating the adverse effects of income inequality. The key measures are well documented in studies by the IMF, the OECD, and others. Improving education and skills training, improving access to healthcare, higher infrastructure investment, expanding financial inclusion, increasing labor market flexibility and mobility, and encouraging participation in labor markets across genders and age. These are essentially what Singapore has been doing with a fair degree of success. But with the acceleration of technological change, labor markets will need to become even more dynamic and flexible. Characterized by a high degree of job destruction, creation, and mobility. And this will probably require more protection and security for workers than we currently have. I will touch on this again in my third lecture. The choice is not between growth and distribution. Some people believe that rapid economic growth has been one of the causes of inequality. The reality is that lower economic growth will not improve inequality and will only make redistribution more difficult. Faster growth per se does not create inequality. It is the singular pursuit of growth unaccompanied by measures to facilitate a more even distribution of its benefits that worsens inequality. Such growth will eventually prove unsustainable if a large segment of the society feels left behind. Likewise, Carefully designed policies to reduce inequality will not necessarily reduce growth. The third horseman, technology, is the fastest, is galloping away 
ahead of the others. I think the four general purpose technologies that could have the biggest impact are one, artificial intelligence or AI, two, robotics, three, the Internet of Things or IoT, and four, blockchains. Probably the most impactful will be AI, algorithms which are designed to continuously learn from the data that they gather and be able to program themselves to perform new tasks. AI is being used to process vast quantities of data and recognize patterns. Computers using AI are trading financial assets and operating motor vehicles. They are even writing clean prose and composing music. Robots are gaining the dexterity to do complex manual jobs. There are now robots which are able to stitch back together a sliced grape or debone a chicken wing. These technologies are already being used to perform delicate surgery. IoT is already ubiquitous. We see it most commonly in the form of mobile phones. They're essentially devices embedded with sensors or software to connect with other systems and devices. Data from IoT devices is making possible the real-time tracking of goods along supply chains and continuous management of risk in financial services. The potential of IoT devices will increase dramatically as 5G networks and edge computing capacity picks up over the next decade. And as more industries become IoT enabled, new business models will emerge. Blockchains are still nascent, but have transformative potential if they can be scaled. Public blockchains are already being used to coordinate intercompany processes. Now, they may have the potential to enable digitized economic and financial transactions across the world 24-7 in real time. Exchange of value can be as seamless as sending an email. And tokenization, which is, a rep which is representing an asset through a smart contract on a blockchain, can make possible the monetization of many assets whose economic value is currently unrealized, such as unused file storage, computing power, and energy credits. This can unlock latent capacity in the real economy. A digital economy is emerging, and data is its lifeblood. The application of these various technologies is bringing about digitalization. Over the 2010s, the accumulated universe of data surged from about 1 trillion gigabytes to nearly 50 trillion. According to McKinsey Global Institute, data flows account for 2.8 trillion US dollars, or 3.6% of world GDP. The growth in computational power and vast increase in the volume of data available has enabled data-driven decision-making using granular, real-time data including unstructured information, such as social media postings. Driven by consumer demand and innovative firms, digital connectivity seems likely to accelerate, further enhancing the centrality of data to social and economic life. The COVID-19 pandemic has given a significant boost to digitalization. Many more people are now comfortable with digital interactions, and remote working models are proliferating the pandemic has also provided an added reason for digitalization. Resilience. Having a digital backup in case human mobility or physical contact is restricted 
has become a key feature of business continuity planning. I would say digitalization has on balance been democratizing. Yes, there is a digital divide between those who have access to digital technology and those who do not. But on balance, digital technology has probably enabled more inclusion than it has created exclusion. The beauty of digital technology is its ease of access through the mobile phone, the internet, and broadband connectivity. There were 2.5 billion smartphone users in the world in 2016. As of 2020, that number has jumped to 3.8 billion. Online digital platforms provide access to the smallest as well as the biggest players. They allow upstarts to build business models with global scale. Notwithstanding these substantial benefits, the social license for continued digitalization will depend on how countries address three issues related to technology. One, the data dilemma. Two, cyber threats. And three, the impact on jobs. The aggregation and extensive mining of data have promoted economic inclusion and opportunity. Firms are able to better understand their customers, deliver more customized services at lower cost, and reach out to previously underserved customers. But this data revolution is being propelled by a handful of digital giants with monopoly powers. A small group of American and Chinese software companies such as Alibaba, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Tencent have leveraged first-mover advantages and network effects to become the monopoly facilitators of data flows. Their ability to gather huge amounts of data through their pervasive platforms and to control this data has become an entry barrier to competition. They have considerable influence on society through their control of the platforms on which people and firms interact with one another. This then is the data dilemma. How do we harness the benefits of data aggregation while ensuring a competitive playing field and that individuals' personal data are not misused? Countries that get their data policies right are better placed to grow the digital economy. This means implementing sensible data governance policies that protect personal data while not impeding innovation and inclusion. Data aggregators should adopt the principles of transparency, fairness, and accountability in the use of data. The growing Web 3.0 movement has already seen the private sector create platforms that enable more open and equitable access to data. Control over data and digital platforms has also become a subject of contestation among countries. Many developed countries are seeking to tax cross-border digital transactions. Many developing countries are imposing data localization requirements that prohibit the cross-border transfer of data. Now, excessively taxing digital transactions or prohibiting the sharing of data will increase business cost, reduce efficiency, and curtail firms' ability to serve their customers better. What we need is, what we need more is data connectivity, not data localization. In the digital economy of the future, data connectivity agreements among countries will become as important as today's free trade agreements. Singapore is off the starting block, initiating digital connectivity agreements with some like-minded jurisdictions. 
these could potentially become pathfinders for broader international data agreements. I will elaborate on data, digital infrastructure, and connectivity in my next lecture. The world needs a new digital Bretton Woods. Just as the rules for international trade and finance were set by the Bretton Woods agreements following the Second World War, we may need a new set of global rules to govern international data flows and exercise oversight of data monopolies. This will help to provide the foundation for a sound and vibrant global digital economy. The incidence, scale, and complexity of cyber attacks have been on a growing trend. Recent attacks on major organizations globally, such as Colonial Pipeline, SolarWinds, and Microsoft, are powerful reminders that the fallout from a cyber attack can be far-reaching. Not content with just corrupting a victim's data using crypto ransomware, cyber attackers are now exfiltrating information from the victim. Cyber criminals are also targeting third, major third-party IT vendors and attacking supply chains to infiltrate the systems of multiple entities. Breaches in sensitive connected systems can lead to serious consequences. Large-scale cyber attacks that succeed in shutting down the electricity grid or telecommunications network or interbank payment system can have systemic consequences across the economy and society. Critical infrastructure systems are especially at risk from nation states and terrorist groups seeking to obtain classified information or even disrupt vital operations. Digital defense is already a sixth limb of total defense in Singapore. And Singapore is in a better place than most countries with a because we have a national cybersecurity agency overseeing a network of sectoral agencies with oversight of the critical infrastructures within their respective sectors. But cyber defense is still work in progress. Businesses today are responsible for the security of their premises. But they do not take measures to defend themselves against an airborne missile attack from abroad. That is the job of the armed forces. Now, how different from a missile attack is a sophisticated, state-sponsored cyber attack? Should we explore a more integrated cyber defense architecture combining the civilian and the military? And a digital Bretton Woods could include setting out protocols for behavior in cyberspace internationally. It could also include frameworks for cyber defense, maybe even rules of cyber engagement. It will not be easy, as nation states themselves engage in cyber espionage and cyber attacks. Is there potential for Singapore as a trusted, competent, and progressive jurisdiction to play a facilitative role in shaping such an international architecture? Technology has been changing the nature of work and skills for over 200 years. In the 1750s, the rise of industrial technology devalued the skills of artisans, but benefited millions of less skilled workers who only had to focus on small portions of an extended process. In the 1980s, information technology began to take over medium-skilled work, such as back-office jobs. We're now witnessing the advance of technology across the skill spectrum. Automation for routine work, robotics for manufacturing activities, blockchains for intermediation services, and artificial intelligence for knowledge work. 
The impact of technology on jobs will be uneven across industries. Robotic automation is proliferating in manufacturing and e-commerce is transforming retail trade. Autonomous vehicles and drones will put at risk jobs linked, jobs linked to driving vehicles to move people or goods. Will there be new jobs to complement or service the robot economy? Or will robots repair robots? We don't know. But with growing automation, we should think tasks, not jobs, skills, not occupations. Historically, what technology displaces is not jobs and occupations per se, but tasks and skills. The introduction of the printing press reduced the value of scribing skills, but increased the value of publishing and dissemination skills. The advent of the internal combustion engine eroded the value of horsemanship skills, but created value for driving skills. Today, the emergence of search engines is shifting value from knowledge-gathering skills to knowledge application skills. Technology is unlikely to eliminate a large number of jobs. Rather, it will affect portions of almost all jobs to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the type of tasks involved in these jobs. There are sectors with skills requirements that are likely to be affected by technology in a positive way. Jobs where automation is more likely to be human augmenting rather than replacing include those in education and training, human health and social work activities. Such jobs require significant cognitive and social intelligence and a knowledge of human heuristics. Reducing the demand, the need for human labor is not entirely a bad thing, especially in labor short Singapore. Can robots transform the construction and cleaning industries and reduce Singapore's dependence on foreign labor? The key to a good outcome for jobs is to intertwine human and technological capabilities. Of course, this is, of course, easier said than done. But the competition from machines has brought to the fore two quintessentially human qualities, imagination and empathy. When machines can do more of what we do today, we will do in our jobs more of what makes us essentially human, to think and create, to feel and connect. Creative imagination is likely to remain the preserve of humans for at least quite some time. Now, computers have started to display signs of creativity. Uh, IBM chef Watson, for instance, reads thousands of existing recipes and is trained to create combinations that people are likely to find delicious but themselves do not know anything about. But while computers can come up with novel answers that human beings cannot, they still operate in a fixed domain solving defined problems. In practice, in reality, problems change as we try to solve them. To ask new questions or regard old, problem, old problems from a different angle, the human imagination still has a distinct advantage. Humans are social creatures capable of empathy while robots are starting to understand human emotions through facial expressions, they cannot quite offer the deep interpersonal connections that we crave. There will still be a premium placed on hearing our diagnosis from a human doctor, even if a computer supplied the diagnosis, simply because we want to talk about it with another human. 
as mechanical tasks and even some cognitive tasks become commoditized, perhaps the scarcest resource will be relationship workers, those who excel in building bridges with others. Computers cannot weigh ethical dilemmas and gray areas. On such matters, humans have to remain at the center of accountability. So human imagination, empathy, and accountability cannot be automated away. In an ir almost ironic way, technology may well help to make us more conscious of what it means to be human and make us better human beings. When nothing is certain, everything is possible. Technology will disrupt our familiar ways. But individuals and businesses facilitated by sound public policies need to face this challenge, not with anxiety, but a sense of adventure. I will share my thoughts in the next lecture on how we might do this in a digital economy. Of the four horsemen, climate is the one that poses an existential challenge. He's the most complex and his trajectory is highly uncertain and difficult to access. Climate change is already happening. Atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide had reached the highest levels in 800,000 years. Over the last three decades, the number of registered severe weather events has tripled. Sea levels have risen 20 centimeters over the past century, with the rate of increase doubling in just the last two decades. The pace of ice loss in the Arctic and Antarctic has tripled over the last decade. The increase in global average temperatures has already reached one degree Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Extrapolating current trends in greenhouse gas emissions, global temperatures are expected to rise by over three degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2100. In fact, we may have already crossed some climate tipping points that could tri trigger self-perpetuating loops and unleash a domino effect. If the current emissions trajectories continue, the world will most likely experience climate catastrophe. The damage to human and natural systems will be severe and likely ir irreversible. This includes rising sea levels, frequent natural disasters, extreme wet and dry seasons, higher incidence of vector-borne diseases, decline in food supplies, and reduction in biodiversity. Global GDP could be 15 to 25% lower by 2100 due to these impacts. How the world responds to the climate challenge will determine the future of generations to come. To avoid the most severe effects of climate change, global greenhouse gas emissions must come down 45% by 2030 and reach net zero around 2050 to keep global warming to within 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This is what 195 countries resolved as part of the Paris Agreement in 2016. There is a renewed sense of urgency and commitment to the climate agenda Despite the COVID-19 pandemic, 2020 witnessed an unprecedented number of commitments to carbon neutrality and net zero emissions by governments, corporations, and other institutions. Perhaps the pandemic has sensitized us to how closely our lives are intertwined with our environment and how fragile 
our natural ecosystem is. But beyond commitments, concerted action is necessary for the world to make the transition to a sustainable future. Long-term ambitions need to be translated into tangible policies and early actions. To reach net zero by 2050, the world needs to start significantly reducing emissions now. The International Energy Authority has released the world's first comprehensive roadmap on how sectors can transition to a net zero energy system by 2050 while ensuring stable and affordable energy supplies and enabling economic growth. Singapore is firmly committed to doing its part in the global effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Earlier this year, the government launched the Singapore Green Plan, which sets out a roadmap towards sustainable development, a green economy, and net zero emissions. Singapore aims to peak carbon emissions around 2030 and to achieve net zero as soon as viable after 2050. We may need to raise our climate ambition, though, in the coming years. Climate change presents physical and transition risks to economies and societies. Physical risk arises from the impact of climate-related natural catastrophes and widespread environmental degradation. Transition risks arise from the process of adjustment to an environmentally sustainable economy, including changes in public policies, technological developments in renewable energy, and shifts in consumer and investor preferences, increases in carbon prices, and an energy reset towards renewables are likely to be among the more impactful transition developments. The Physical impact of climate change is likely to be multidirectional and varied across regions. Wet places are likely to become wetter, dry places drier. Tropical countries are expected to experience the most severe impacts of climate change. At the same time, rising temperatures in the polar regions of the world could have potentially devastating consequences for sensitive ecosystems across the planet. The distribution of arable land, freshwater resources, land and sea connectivity, all of them could potentially be altered. The speed, scale and impact of global warming are highly uncertain. Uh, this reflects the complexity of the climate system and its many interactions with humanity. In fact, some scientists believe that global warming may well usher in a new ice age. The melting of the polar glaciers will not only raise sea levels, but also reduce the salinity of the oceans that could in turn lead to changes in the patterns of ocean currents. If the Gulf Stream, which circulates warm waters across the North Atlantic Ocean, stops functioning, parts of Western Europe and the east coast of the US and Canada could potentially experience Arctic conditions. As a low-lying tropical island, Singapore is at significant physical risk from climate change. With most of the country lying just 15 meters above sea level, the risk of coastal inundation and inland flooding is real. According to the Center for Climate Research Singapore, by the end of the century, daily mean temperatures will increase by 1.4 to 4.6 degrees Celsius, and mean sea levels by 0.25 to 0.76 meters. To mitigate some of these impacts, we have begun to take measures like using technology to reduce urban heat diversifying our water supply in case of dry spells, and building polders to protect our coastline against sea level rise. Carbon pricing is gaining momentum. 
There are 64 carbon pricing initiatives in the world today, with 35 of them being carbon taxes and 29 emissions trading systems. Today, most of the jurisdictions who have implemented carbon pricing have carbon prices below 50 US dollars per tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent, with the exception of some countries in Europe, such as Sweden, Norway, and France, where it is much higher. However, to put the world on a trajectory towards achieving the Paris Agreement goals, carbon prices will need to be much higher. According to the High-Level Commission on Carbon Prices, led by Joseph Stiglitz and Nicholas Stern, and recent estimates by the Network for Greening the Financial System, carbon price needs to increase to between 100 US dollars and 160 US dollars per tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent by 2030. Recently, IMF staff have proposed a three-tier carbon price floor among the major emitters in the world at, 25, at 25, dollars, 25 US dollars, 50 US dollars, and 75 US dollars per tonne. If major emitters agree on a global minimum carbon price, there is likely to be a convergence globally towards that price. Carbon-intensive exports from countries with lower carbon prices may be subject to carbon border adjustments in importing countries with higher carbon prices. Singapore is the first country in Southeast Asia to implement a carbon tax. But at five Singapore dollars or $3.75 US per ton of greenhouse gas emissions, it is far below what is needed to catalyze carbon mitigation efforts. I will come back to carbon pricing in my second lecture. Higher carbon prices will have a significant impact on many industries globally. Activities such as power generation from fossil fuels, production of steel and cement, building and construction will experience outsized impacts given their current reliance on emissions-intensive inputs and processes. In the electric utility sector, for instance, profits at risk could be as much as 90% of margins by 2030. There will be knock-on impacts downstream as these activities form the basis for a good part of the economy. The global trans transition from hydrocarbons to renewable energy is gaining momentum and is likely to accelerate. The cost of renewable energy has fallen dramatically over the past decade. While fossil fuels remain the dominant source of energy production, the amount of power generated through wind and solar is rapidly catching up to that generated by coal. Coal power plants are being phased out around the world. But oil and natural gas are likely to remain major sources of energy production at least until 2040. The energy reset will be particularly challenging for Singapore because our natural endowments disadvantage the harnessing of renewable energy. We do not have the land space necessary to tap solar or wind, wind energy or fast-flowing rivers for hydroelectric power. Singapore needs to be highly innovative to overcome these disadvantages. Using our reservoirs, we are opening one of the world's largest floating solar energy systems. We are exploring transmission lines to neighboring countries to tap on and trade in the renewable energy that they produce. We will need many more of such innovations in the years ahead. Transitioning to a net zero economy also opens up opportunity in the green economy of the future. Countries with the technological capabilities and fiscal resources will be able to seize opportunities brought about by this transition. Singapore is well placed to thrive in a green economy 
provided we make some bold, decisive moves. I will touch on this in my next lecture. Singapore will need to make a whole-of-nation effort to make the transition to a sustainable future. In my fourth lecture, I will speak about a vision for an environmentally conscious nation. The four horsemen are riding through Singapore. Many of their adverse effects cannot be avoided. But if we set our minds to it, Singapore has what it takes to mitigate the downsides, seize the opportunities, and create a better world. Singapore's remarkable development as an economy, as a society, and as a nation was made possible by a synthesis of an eclectic mix of policies and approaches. As an economy, Singapore has judiciously combined the invisible hand of markets with the enabling hand of the government to deliver first world prosperity. As a society, it has enshrined meritocracy as the guiding principle while achieving considerable equality in educational and economic opportunity. And as a nation, it has been one of the most international in orientation while assiduously building a distinct national identity and ethos. And there has been an overall coherence across policies, a synergy across the various parts, the Singapore synthesis. Three attributes form the cornerstone of the Singapore synthesis. Adaptation, an ability to adopt best practices from around the world. Competition, an emphasis on letting the market determine outcomes. Pragmatism, a focus on what works in practice rather than in principle. These attributes have been decisive in Singapore's success to date and will remain critical for Singapore's future in the face of the four horsemen. But they may not be enough. Adaptation without innovation descends into stagnation. Competition without inclusion degenerates into elitism. Pragmatism without inspiration deteriorates into expediency. We need a refreshed Singapore synthesis, not replacing but enhancing the old synthesis. The new Singapore synthesis must pivot towards more innovation, inclusion, inspiration. In the face of the challenges posed by the four horsemen, we need to be more of an innovative economy, an inclusive society, and an inspiring nation. They are about how we make a living, how we build a community, and how we find our purpose. I look forward to discussing with you the new Singapore synthesis over the next three lectures. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Menon. May I now invite Professor Danny Kua to start the Q&A session. Good afternoon. Hi, Danny. Good Hi. You. I'm sure I echo the audience in thanking you and congratulating you on such a wise, insightful, thoughtful, wide-ranging lecture. Really a tour de force. Um, what I'd like to do is to engage you in a conversation on some of what I thought to be common points across the entire lecture, but also in such a way that allows us to talk without uh, trespassing into the things that you're going to be talking about later. 
So one of the things that struck me as, we, as, I, as I listened to you was how there were common patterns across the problems presented us by the four horsemen. In fact, all five horsemen, uh, the complementary fifth horseman. And, and one common factor is, of course, that these are problems that are common to many nations. They are pronounced in Singapore, given the characteristics that we have here, but there are challenges in all nations. So really, what you're talking about will be of interest to everyone. But on top of that, on top of that, these problems are not just shared, they are interconnected mm. across nations. As we go through them, climate, for instance, is the leading example. It's global climate change. It's not American climate change or Singapore climate change. It's global climate change. And part of that is the thinking that what happens in one nation spills over into another. It's what economists might call externalities. And so as I think about all four or all five of these horsemen, these challenges, it struck me that a common theme across all of them was the interconnectedness across nations. And so as we go forwards, as, we, as I wait to, to hear from you on the Singapore synthesis, how, how we here take on these challenges, I thought we could spend some time this afternoon trying to get your views on what it means to build international collaboration going beyond what we're going to be talking about that are specific to Singapore. Your perspective as a central banker gives us interesting insight on international collaboration, but these challenges themselves are quite unique. So I wonder if I could throw over to you to get mm. some of your thoughts on building international architectures, the role that Singapore might play facilitating these constructions. What do we need as a world going forwards? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Um, it was, uh, I mean, you've, you've hit the nub of the issue. Uh, most, in fact, all of these problems are global problems, and global problems require global solutions and global actions. Um, and the interdependence uh, of our actions um, is critical to, to the solution. Um, so what are the prospects for, for cooperative efforts? Unfortunately, compared to the post-World War period, when uh, I referred to Bretton Woods in 1946, um, when actually there was, because of the devastation and ravages of war, countries were knocked into their senses and, and, and said, we, we should not do this again. Let's put in place structures that will make the global system naturally cooperative and there's a way to resolve differences. Uh, this was particularly strong in Europe, which had been, you know, European nations have been battering one another for 2,000 years. Uh, and now, since the war, they've been the most peaceful continent. Um, and the rapprochement with Japan and Germany. And the rule setting, I think, was amazingly visionary. Strong leadership from across the world. Uh, to set up the Bretton Woods institutions. The WTO, of course, came much later as an institution, but the GATS agreement modulated trade. Uh, the IMF set rules for capital flows and, and international finance. The World Bank 
to uplift poorer countries from poverty, uh, development assistance, coordination. Uh, this kind of global architecture uh, worked wonderfully well for about 50 years. And today, as you know, uh, those institutions are fraying. There has not been a fresh imagination. Um, but there are small signs of hope. Um, I'll, I'll just mention a few. One is, of course, the Paris Agreement itself. Uh, this had been discussed for many years before, but came to fruition just recently. Um, because nations just realized that if, if none of us, if we can't do this together, uh, it's not going to get done, because none of, this, none of us is going to do this on our own. It's a classic tragedy of the commons, that realization was strong, and so the agreement was signed. Now, and then now there are commitments being made and commitments being strengthened, all of which are good signs. But we, have not, you know, we still have to see implementation and action. Uh, but at least that's a good sign. Um, the other good sign in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis was how the world's central banking and financial regulatory community got together and said, this must never happen again. Right? Um, we must end too big to fail. We must strengthen the banking system, and we cannot be in a competitive mold. We must jointly agree on what are minimum standards that we're going to set, and we'll all follow those rules, even if individual countries are not satisfied with the package. That was a huge and highly successful, I would say, endeavor in international cooperation, with all countries coming on board. Um, so I think we are seeing some signs of this. Um, we need to see some of this in the digital arena. Uh, I spoke about uh, a digital Bretton Woods, mm -hmm. and um, there, is, there are such conversations going on bilaterally. A lot will depend on leadership shown by the major powers. If this is something that the uh, United States, China, the EU, uh, and you know, Japan and others put their minds to, uh, it can happen, the same way it happened in 1945-1946. Are we there yet? Not on every issue. Uh, my hope is on climate, we can continue to push the agenda, because there the tensions are not competitive. Uh, it is all of us yeah. are going to get into huge trouble, so we better work together. Uh, in the digital space, it's a little bit more complicated because of the sensitivities around technology, and uh, making technology interoperable and having connect, uh, data flows seamless and protected requires a high degree of trust. And that trust doesn't quite exist today uh, among the major powers. It has eroded quite considerably over the last five, 10 years. So that is going to be a huge challenge. So it's going to be a mixed picture. On some areas, we will move further uh, on other areas, we probably get stymied. Thank you. Thank you for that. The, you know, in, in your answer, it struck me that there were two classes of challenges we might think about. One is where there's a little bit, not so much an exact zero-sum game, but there's a little bit of a, if I win, you lose, or you have to give up something so that I can mm. get ahead. Yeah. And those are one class of challenges, and it takes the kind of leadership, sort of a, a power, great power to try and force through something that works for everyone. And then there's a second class of challenges where actually no one needs to lose, mm. but it's simply a free rider problem. Yes. I just 
can sit back and rely on others to solve that problem. I yeah. don't have to extend myself. And we need to separate these. But also embedded in your answer is, uh, is the idea that in an earlier age, there was an immediacy and an urgency coming out of the Second World War. And the great powers were in a good position to sort of craft a new architecture. The world is, as you say, different now, and the challenges are different. And there's this mix of zero-sum game type problems, free rider type problems. But also, perhaps I can press you a little bit on this, and this relates to a question that's come in. Um, it used to be we thought that it, leadership uh, was the preserve of a great power. We are a small nation. All of us outside of the great powers are small nations. But arguably, we are the ones who have the democratic voice to try and push forward a vision of a more equitable, fairer, greener world. So the challenge that's been put for us in, in one of the questions here from uh, someone named Hua, who's an IPS adjunct senior research fellow, is how does a small country that is so good at doing the things that it's done historically help convince the rest of the world on best practice for economic health or for environmental health. You see, if we're talking about financial regulation, it does not have to take a great power to best regulate financial markets. You don't need an aircraft carrier to regulate financial markets. You need the kind of wisdom that Ravi Menon has. <laughs> so, so what is it? How do we change that narrative there? on the role of small nations in this international architecture? How do we... Yeah, that, that is um, basically the challenges of a multipolar world. Uh, when I said post-Second World War, the rules of the game were written uh, in a very visionary fashion. It was basically, uh, it was a club of small players, small group of players, men, white men, in smoke-filled rooms, who hatched all this together. Um, today, if you want anything done, it has to be at least the G20, uh, and that is a mix of countries, and rightly so, because I think they all have a voice, a legitimate voice, and they have different considerations. And there is a sense among many of the developing countries that the rules of the game internationally uh, have been written by the predominant uh, developed countries of the time. But the world has changed a lot since then. So I think the setting up of the G20 has been a major advance. It's no longer just the G7, right? Um, and I think a lot of the uh, cooperative actions that are taking place are now being channeled through the G20. But it is slower, much slower, because the, it's heterogeneous. Um, what kind of role can Singapore play? Well. I think the biggest premium we have in these things is twofold. One is our tr trust. Second is competence. That uh, we have a reputation for thinking through things carefully and offering rational solutions. And then everybody knows that they have to make adjustments for practical, political, social considerations. But uh, they know Singapore speaks the voice of reason be it for climate change, be it for 
cooperation in technology and so on, um, and trust. Mm -hmm. uh, because we are so small, we have very little vested interests in many of these issues, um, nothing to protect. And so, again, that, that trust is, is, is strong. So we can be a facilitator, and we have been a facilitator in many things, especially in the old days at the WTO. Uh, and, um, and I'm hoping that we can, and I think we're beginning to play a bigger role in matters digital, uh, where exercise thought leadership and there is trust, uh, and that we have a regime that uh, uh, emphasizes good governance and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. So I think we can play a role, mm -hmm. but you know, as a small country, you're not gonna pull off anything. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to work, you still need the major powers to be broadly aligned. Mm -hmm. And then they're having difficulty converging. Mm -hmm. Then Singapore, I think, can play a role. Mm -hmm. But if they are starting with diametrically different positions, mm -hmm. um, that becomes much more difficult. Mm -hmm. On climate, I'm a bit more hopeful. Both China and the United States and the EU recognize the importance of doing something. They differ on burden sharing and mm. you know the, the mm. second and third order issues, which are not trivial, mm. but are the kinds of things that can be reasoned and talked through. It's no fundamental difference. Mm. And in those areas, I think Singapore can play a role mm. because mm. that's where we come in with our trust and uh, competence premium. Mm. Mm. In technology cooperation, I am not very hopeful because it is, as you say, quite a competitive relationship, uh, characterized by distrust. Mm. And so, you know, I didn't touch on it very much, but the, the uh, risk of bifurcation of technology uh, because of a mistrust of using one another's systems or components, uh, software or hardware, uh, could lead to a bifurcation and countries then will have to make a choice. And if these systems are not interoperable, um, you know, like the old days, the Macintosh was not interoperable with the IBM PC, but mm. today they are, right? The software mm. is. But if we, are get, if we get stuck in that kind of mold, or the VHS Betamax, if you recall the video yeah. cassette player, yeah. uh, that kind of non-interoperability is going to be very damaging. Uh, to create a global digital economy. Yeah. But uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah. It's going to be tough because uh, the technology area is being seen by both the US and China as the main area of contestation. Because whoever masters and gains supremacy in technology is going to have an outsized influence in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So I can see where that dynamic is coming from. And it's going to be difficult for, mm. to, to, to mm. un unravel that one. Yeah. No, I like very much the way you've uh, carved out these sets of problems into things that are perhaps easy wins. Climate is one of them. We all benefit. You know, we, 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 should, we should all be working together. And in doing that, we build trust across nations. And building trust across nations, I think, could also potentially help on the competition issue because after all competition is supposed to be good it, it makes all of us perform better, better. except yeah. when we think competition un undermines somebody else in a profound mm. fundamental way which is kind of takes me to my my question to you on inequality and now our views on meritocracy that 
you know, we, we meritocracy now uh, is a nuanced word. Perhaps it, it always was nuanced ever since its first development by the British sociologists. But there are parts of the world and parts of society that consider it sort of a, a natural extension of our putting forwards the best people to do the best things. And it, in some ways, in some parts of the world still, meritocracy is thought of as a level playing field. You put people on a level playing field, the best come up, and then the winners are who they are. There's no ill will towards those who've won. Uh, those who've lost say well played and do not try and overturn the outcome of that game. Now somehow, in the decades since we've been discussing meritocracy, especially in Singapore, our understanding of it has transmogrified. <laughs> it's transmogrified mm. into hereditary meritocracy, meritocracy being entrenched elites. And I worry sometimes, I'd like to get your view on this, worry sometimes that we're losing the good things that should have come out of that. You know, I want the best brain surgeon to operate on me when my brain has gone yes. bonkers. I don't want just anybody to do that. Now, how do we guarantee that kind of an outcome, but still lead to a fair, equitable society where there's, you know, uh, uh, everybody has an opportunity? And that seems to me a difficult landscape to navigate. It's one not easily disposed of with sort of not clever slogans. It's something that needs hard thinking. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fully with you, Danny, on that. Um, I think um, meritocracy remains uh, quite critical to the success of the free enterprise market economy, uh, and especially for a small country like Singapore. Um, it must be one of the bedrocks. Uh, just as the market economy is, right, and, and capitalism. Um, but you know from history that uh, capitalism itself and the market economy has undergone many transformations, reform, has had to reform itself to rid itself of some of its own excesses um, so that it remains uh, uh, viable and fit for purpose. Um, you know, as Marx, Karl Marx put it, uh, the capitalist system sows within itself the seeds of its own destruction. And I think to some extent that's what's happening with meritocracy. It is an ideal. It is what uh, most people would regard as fair. Um, but there is something about its workings, just like capitalism, that creates dysfunctionalities, that create its own undermining. Mm. An example, what do we mean by meritocracy? Equal opportunity. Everybody starts off yes. together, the race, right? And then the person who, who is faster, who trained harder, uh, wins the race. And I think everybody sees that as fair. Uh, but life is not one race. Life is a relay. So if you have a four by 100 relay, the baton gets passed on at different times then you're not having, from the, pers from the person at the second leg, mm -hmm. it's not equal. Right. At the third stage, it is not. Right. And when the race goes on and on, right. um, then where is the equality of opportunity? Because you are inheriting advantage. Yes. And that is counter to meritocracy, because it is not your merit, but it's the advantage you've acquired that allowed you to have an edge 
in acquiring merit. It, it is. So that, I think, is the, it's, you know, it, it reminds me of what Marx said about capitalism. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with capitalism, but it means that capitalism needs to adjust itself. That if the capital share of income grows exponentially and the working class is suppressed, uh, then this system cannot be sustained. And that's where you have the response, the trade unions, uh, the labor movement, rights, and then the Keynesian revolution, uh, the New Deal in America, the welfare state. And, and all these are adjustments that are made to make capitalism function better, to make the market economy function better. In other words, to legitimize the market economy in the eyes of people so that they see it as still fair. I think what is an affront to many is the sense of unfairness of the system. Mm. So the system has to continually retune itself mm. uh, to be seen as fair. And that's what we need to do with meritocracy too. It's not never to discard it. Once you discard it, we're finished. But we need to retool it so that the fairness and the equality of opportunity, it can never be absolute, uh, is roughly maintained. Th thank, thank you, thank you for that. I mean, we're talking in, at this point in quite abstract general terms. Uh, as you were speaking, lots of questions were coming in to try and expand on meritocracy and its practice, especially here in Singapore. That's something of huge interest, intense interest. Now, I've, I'm refraining a bit from, from saying all those questions because I'm sure you're going to be dealing with them as you go forwards. But can I just indulge maybe just one so that you can maybe say a little bit about some of the lecture that might be coming? Um, and, and this is that um, uh, a question from, let me try, let me make sure I, I say the name right, from uh, T. Wei Pin. It's a question about Singapore and inequality in particular. So the, the question is, if I may just, just say it, uh, it has a, Singapore is a small country with, according to, to the questioner, a close-knit circle of business leaders that are dominating executive positions in companies in the landscape here. How do the not so privileged, but equally educated and capable other Singaporeans break this barrier? Now, I'm saying this question, not necessarily because I, I want mm -hmm. an answer from you now, but just to reflect on how, you know, this is a, a thinking about some of the great challenges that we face here in Singapore on the meritocracy issue. And maybe I'll, I'll just leave it for you mm. to deal with, you might say, okay, I'm going to deal with this later. You might say, okay, here's a different, what do you say <laughs> to this kind of a question? Yeah, no, it's difficult. Um, I think um, when I broached the subject of inequality, um, you, you would have noticed I did not emphasize very much the Gini coefficient, and I'm going to come back to that Gini coefficient. I think it has become an unfortunate shorthand uh, for things. And that's why I said inequality itself is a byproduct of how the economy functions. And actually, if we did not have inequality, a lot of us would be unhappy. <laughs> Let me re relate a story. Um, uh, DPM Heng Sui Ket is on the MAS board. Uh, we have uh, lunches once in a while. And he was at the time also a minister for education. So there were a number of us at the table, mostly uh, young mothers and fathers. And then they were talking about the stresses of exams and competition. And so uh, DPM Heng asked, what if we 
uh, instead of allocating schools so finely on the basis of PSLE points, why don't we ballot? Straight away, everybody was unhappy. Mm. You see, they are complaining about the competition, the, the, and, and you know, the almost winner-takes-all kinds of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And yet, when uh, a balloting was proposed, which would seem, in a way, fair, it, fairness is a very subjective concept, uh, no, 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 that wouldn't be right. No, then, you know, my kid studies so hard and he doesn't get to the school that he wants to go to. So therein lies the, the difficulty in, uh, in this, that um, we don't like the outcomes, but what is the better solution? Mm. That's not clear. Mm. Um, mm. So rather than harp on inequality, that's why I thought we should then focus on poverty, mm. Those at the really at the bottom, mm. how are they faring? Mm. Are they getting a good good enough deal mm. in a civilized, prosperous country? Mm. Are they being well taken care of? I think that should be the first. Then I think middle class welfare, mm. because and this goes back to Aristotle, right? That a, a, a democracy survives on the basis of support from the middle, mm. right? And uh, I mentioned Singapore's uh, real median wage last 10 years has gone up 2.6% per annum. I know, it's amazing. It's a very decent real Absolutely. wage increase, Absolutely. right? Uh, it means people's lives are getting better at the middle, the broad middle. And we must always ensure that. Now, it's not a given, and I do have some worries, and many people have worries, and that's why we need to work very hard to make sure we should not have what happens in the US. 20 years of stagnation at the middle. Mm. So that's not an inequality question. Mm. It is a middle stagnation question, mm. right? Mm. Uh, the poor, if they stagnate, the state can help. But the middle is too large. It's difficult. And they don't want to, to live on you know, state welfare. Yeah. Uh, the third is wealth inequality. I think it goes back to an earlier point you made about, I think that's one of the things that undermines meritocracy itself. Mm. Because the accumulation of wealth can far exceed the differences in income from differences in abilities and performance because of the way prices of financial assets and real estate moves, uh, with little effort, one becomes extraordinarily rich. Of course, he's taking a risk, but again, the returns for that risk can be huge. And so wealth inequality, I think, creates a sense of unfairness, mm. right? Yeah. The brain surgeon who's operating on you, I don't think anybody begrudges mm the high pay that he's getting, and you will pay him well. Mm. What people begrudge is if his kids mm. inherit his huge wealth mm. and you know, live a life, a high lifestyle, mm. without giving back to society mm. Mm. and act as an elite, mm. that people won't see as fair, right? Yeah. So but, I think yeah. that's why I thought we, we, and then social mobility is the mm. last, and they're related, right? Mm. So hereditary, Hereditary meritocracy is probably an extreme way of describing what this might end up as, mm. and it's something we must avoid. Mm. Th thank you for such a wonderful, nuanced, and, and complete answer to this question, <laughs> because you've really uh, shown us how, by being fast and loose with our language, with ideas that we throw around, inequality, this, that, and the other, mm. we have hidden away far deeper problems, problems that actually can be tackled, problems yeah. that policymakers yeah. need to address. I have to confess, I am so looking forward 
to, <laughs> to, to the rest of your lectures as we unpack all of these issues because there's going to be lots more to come. Thank you so much for this, <laughs> this conversation. I'm going to hand back to the MC now. Well, I just want to say, Danny, thank you. And uh, well, don't raise expectations <laughs> too high because I'm also going to have to pose a lot of questions. Uh, it's not as if there are, if the answers were there, they would have been done. Yes, but the issues are more nuanced, as you put it. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Kwa and Mr. Menon. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please scan the QR code on the screen now or click our link on the Facebook comment box to submit your feedback. Mr. Menon's second lecture, titled An Innovative Economy, will take place next Wednesday on 14 July. Details will be on our website and our Facebook page. We, we hope to see you then. Thank you for all for attending this evening's lecture. Have a good evening.